Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. I would love for you to grab a Bible and turn to 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 18. If you're visiting, we want to welcome you. My name is uh, Scott Luck. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are uh, delighted to have you a part of our, of our church family, and, and uh, we would love to connect with you out in the foyer after the service. We have been we have been in a series of messages that I've, I've been calling Be the Church, and I've, I've been challenging all of you to take a step in your discipleship. I, I'm, I'm challenging all of you to, to grow to maturity and, and to follow and to pursue Jesus uh, like never before. And, and uh, what, one of the things that we've kind of been sharing, we've, we've been talking about is, you know, uh, a lot of people in the church kind of see two different classifications of people in the church, you know. You've got uh, the Christians, and that's what most of us are. And, and uh, so you have that group. And then you've got a, a smaller group. Uh, they're kind of the elite group. Uh, they're the really committed, you know. And we look at them as disciples, you know. So you've got Christians, and then you've got these disciples who are really committed. It's, it's kind of like disciples are like spiritual Marines, you know, the few, the proud, the disciples. You got a job needs to be done, send in a disciple. And, um, and so there are a lot of people that kind of think in those two categories. Um, and, you know, there are just a lot of people that kind of think through, well, um, I, I really don't want to be a disciple. I don't, I don't, I don't want to follow God that intensely because um, he, you know, he might invade my life and make my life uncomfortable. I would rather, you know, I'd rather do the least possible amount, you know, fulfill the least possible requirement just so that I can get in heaven. And if I can do that, then I'm good. And, and a lot of people think that way. And the thing that I, I've been saying over the last couple or few weeks is there, there are really not two categories in the church. There's not Christians and then an elite group called disciples. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is this, that a Christian is a disciple and a disciple is a Christian. And I've been sharing with you like in Acts 11, you know, at Antioch was the first place where the disciples were called Christians. Really the word Christian is a descriptor of disciple. And so there's not these two categories. And, and so I've been, as a result, just challenging you to say, you know, let's, let's follow Jesus. Let's go after him because he's worthy of our discipleship. He's worthy of our fellowship, if you will. So, so the word disciple really means learner. It really means follower. And uh, there's another part of disciple that I, I want to talk about today. And, and, and that is this, that, you know, a disciple is someone who identifies with someone else. They identify with a rabbi or a teacher. Uh, so they, 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 they have this public identification with, with another and they're learning from that, that other. And so that's what a disciple really is. It's someone who has publicly identified as a follower of Jesus. And the most important identity marker in the Christian faith is baptism. And so that's what we want to talk about today. I want to talk about really what baptism means today. And I want to just challenge you to take a step either to remember your baptism or to go forward and be, and be baptized. Now, you know, in a lot of churches, a lot of churches, they don't take baptism seriously. They really don't. Uh, they see it as, you know, kind of a ritual, a religious ritual that you check off the box. They see it as a family tradition. They see, they see 
baptism is some kind of rite of passage. But the Bible says, the Bible teaches that baptism is a life-changing event. It is, it is a, it's an identity-shaping event in the life of a Christian. That's what baptism really is. And it's, it marks a huge change that has occurred. You know, there's a pastor in Texas, Jim Dennison, um, who was telling about a time where he did a summer missionary trip in Malaysia. And so he was helping out a Malaysian pastor in a small church there. And, and so uh, it was at the end of a service and the pastor gave an invitation and this 17, 18 year old girl came forward to receive Christ and to be baptized. And, and so they baptized her and you know, there was a big celebration in the church. But Jim Dennison said he noticed that there was a set of luggage in the corner of the church just kind of tucked away. And he's like, I've never seen that before. You know, who, whose luggage is that? And so he asked the pastor and the pastor said, well, you know, the girl that came forward and got baptized, uh, well, it's hers. It actually belongs to her. And she told her parents that, that she's committing her life to Christ and she was going to be baptized. And her parents said to her that if she took the step of baptism, that she was never welcome in their home again. And she might as well pack up her stuff and leave. And that's exactly what she did. See, that's baptism. And that's what it really means. It's that life altering. And, you know, in the book of Acts, you see it over and over again, people taking this step into baptism. You know, in the book of Acts, in the early church, they didn't get baptized to make grandma happy. You know what I'm saying? They, they didn't get baptized to kind of go through the motions of something religious. You know, they didn't get baptized because it's just kind of what, fam, you know, what our family does. No, baptism is, is, it's a means of grace. It's a means of God pouring grace into our life. But it's also a public declaration that I identify with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. And what we're going to see in the passage that we're going to look at today is Jesus is worthy of our public declaration of allegiance. Does that make sense? He is, he is absolutely worthy of that. Now we'll, we'll get into that in a minute. Let me, let me share with you a couple of things to kind of set up the passage that we're going to look at today in 1 Peter. Uh, the first thing to kind of help us understand this, I need to just kind of let you know that this is one of the most difficult passage, passages in the entire Bible to interpret and understand. Okay, If there's a verse that I get asked about the most, it's this one. I, I, I get asked about this, like, what does this mean, you know, pretty regularly. All right, so just understand that we need to, we need to approach this humbly today as we kind of dive into this passage, right? The second thing that I would say is when you're trying to understand any passage of Scripture, it really helps to understand the context, kind of what's going on around the verse. Because if you just pull it out of context, then you're pulling it out of what it really is trying to say and what it really means. And, and so we need to kind of we, kinda, we need to dive down on the context just a little bit. And so what Peter is doing is he's writing a group of Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. They're going through suffering. They're going through trials. They're going through difficulty. And it relates to the fact that they're Christians. And I think there's a, I think there's a, I think there's a truth in that, in that some of us believe that if we become Christians and we follow Jesus, that somehow we're going to be exempted from troubles and difficulties. And what the Bible teaches is actually the opposite is true. That if you become a Christian, you're going to have some troubles and persecutions as a result of 
of being a Christian. And, and the good news, I think, of you know, the Christian faith and what I think makes Christianity different from every other religion is the Bible says that our sufferings, our adversities, our, per, you know, our persecutions, you know, even our failures turn out for greater glory. Like God uses those things and brings a greater glory of himself before us. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's pretty cool, isn't it? That God can take the worst situations, the most painful situations that you and I are walking through, that you and I are struggling with, and he can turn those around and use them for good. I mean, that's pretty incredible when you think about it. And so what Peter's trying to do here is he's just trying to encourage them. He's trying to just help them. You know, some of them have lost their homes. Some of them have their homes ransacked. Some of them have lost family members just because their family members are believers. So he's just trying to encourage them. Keep a good conscience. Keep the faith. Don't give up. And what he does is he reminds them of the work of Christ. He reminds them of Jesus, you know, suffering, his death, you know, his resurrection, his ascension. He, he reminds them of those things because he wants them to see God took the evil of Jesus' death and he turned it around and used it for salvation for everyone. And that's pretty good news. So he's, he wants to use Jesus as kind of a way to, you know, a way to encourage them and, and, and really to kind of point them back to their baptism. So here's, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna read this passage and uh, it's an interesting one today, so, uh, I, you know, I think you'll like it. So I'm going to invite you, if you are willing and able, would you please stand together as we read the Word of God today. So Peter writes this, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. All right, so verse 19. <laughs> he says this, in which he went. He's talking about Jesus. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. What in the heck is he talking about right there? Um, and can I just, can I just tell you? Uh, I have no idea what he's saying right there. Um, actually, um, actually, I'm not the only one in that boat. Let me, let me just share with you a quote from Martin Luther. He, Martin Luther's a theologian and a, a great Bible commentator. This is what he says about this particular passage. So uh, I find some comfort in his words. He says, a wonderful text is this. He says, there's not a more obscure passage than this in the entire New Testament. Therefore, I do not know what Peter means at all. <laughs> what Luther is admitting to the, what he's saying is this. It's a wonderful passage. It's a great passage. It's an obscure passage. And he has no idea what Peter is trying to say. That's what he's really trying to say. Um, actually, he does have some ideas on it. And uh, I've got some ideas that I want to 
uh, I've got some ideas as well that I want to share with you as, as well. So as we kind of think about this, uh, you know, when you're coming into, you know, you're coming, you're reading your Bible and you come to a passage that you don't understand, it's, it's you know, and you're trying to understand it. I think, I think what's really helpful is you just start with what's clear in the passage. You know, what is it that we do know for sure that he's saying? And I think that clarity helps us to bring even more clarity to what's not clear in the passage. So, so I think there's two things going on in this passage. Very simply, I think what Peter is describing is the work of Christ. I think he's giving four, four different aspects or pieces of the work of Christ. So he, he describes that. We're going to walk through those in just a minute. And then he's going to talk about how we are connected to the work of Christ on the cross. And then we've got little verse 19 that we got to deal with right in the middle, all right? So let's, let's just kind of look at it. Let's look at the work of Christ. Let's see what's clear in the passage, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get to what's not clear. I, I think there's four aspects to the work of Christ, as I mentioned. Here's the first one. You want to write this down. The first aspect of the work of Christ is that Jesus suffered. Go back and look at verse 18. That's, that's so clear. It's, it's so straightforward. It's, it's a slam dunk. For Christ also suffered. So what he, what he is doing is he's unpacking what Jesus did for us. That's clear as a bell. He suffered, verse 18. Notice how he describes the suffering. For Christ also suffered once. Okay, now we know that everybody suffers. We all suffer in different ways. But there was something, there's something different about Christ's suffering. Christ suffered once. That means it was unique. It was on a different level. It, it had a different meaning. It had different significance. His suffering is on a different level than your, your suffering and mine. On a whole different level. And so he's highlighting that. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. Now, again, this is so straightforward. We got this. We, we, we got this. We, we see this. Now, whose sins did Jesus suffer for? Did he suffer for his own sins? No, because the Bible tells us he's sinless. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. It can't be his sins. Whose sins did he, he suffer for? Well, Peter tells us. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's a really important verse. That is classic substitutionary language there. He's the righteous. He suffered for our sins, the unrighteous. That's absolutely clear. And that's what he's saying. This is called the great exchange. He took our place. He suffered for us. He received the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, the mental, you know, all of it. He received all of that suffering that we should have gotten in our place. It's really good news. You see how clear this is? This is so clear. But there's a second aspect to the work of Christ. And it's not only his suffering, but it's his death. Notice Notice verse 18 uh, says this. So he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. Being put to death in the flesh. Jesus died is what he's saying. So he not only suffered, but his suffering took him all the way and went to death. That's absolutely clear in the passage. There's no question about that. Now, this is where a lot of modern people kind of struggle uh, because they, they, just, they just kind of wonder, you know, why in the world, you know, why does sin carry such a consequence to it that Jesus had to die or, or we have to die? You know, and the thought process is why can't God just kind of wave his magic wand and, you know, just kind of, 
okay, guys, y'all need to stop. And I'll just look it over this time. We won't, I, won't, I won't bring judgment for sin or anything. You know, if you guys can just get it together, you know. Well, he can't do that. Because what we don't understand is that sin has consequences to it. From the teeny tiniest little sin, the little white lie that, you know, that somebody tells to the biggest thing that somebody does. Every sin has a consequence. And the Bible says the wages of sin, the consequence of sin is death. So it's like when we sin, we create a debt between us and God. And it's a debt that is very, very steep. And so God in his love, you know, he, he wants to show that grace and mercy to us, but he's also not only a God of love, he's a God of justice. And so he's got to collect payment. If he doesn't collect payment, he can't be just, perfectly just in all that he does. It would be like this. You know, imagine someone breaks into your home, heaven, heaven forbid, you know, someone breaks in your home, you know, they, they kill your family, steal all your stuff, and then they leave you alive. The police catch them the next day, arrest them, take them, you know, take them to jail. They appear before a judge. The judge asks this criminal, how do you plead? He pleads guilty. And then the judge kind of looks at him and says, you know what? You look like you're really sorry for you. I'm just going to let you go. I'm going to let you off. Now, what are you thinking in the courtroom as you're watching all of this go down? You're thinking, judge, you can't do that. That's not fair. Why? Because that, that person created a debt to society and most definitely created a debt with you. What would you do? You would demand justice. Why? Because you've been sinned against. And it's the same way with God. He, he, there has to be payment for sin. That debt has to be paid. And, and I think that's at the heart of what is happening here. The, church, the reason why there's death in the world is because there's sin. That's why we die. Because we've sinned. The, all of humankind has sinned. That's at, that's at the heart. It's, it's caused this debt between us and God. So the most basic proclamation of the gospel is Jesus suffered, Jesus died. Those are those are two aspects of the work of Christ. But there's a third aspect of the work of Christ. Look at verse 21. This is Jesus' resurrection. Notice what he says. Now I'm going to kind of skip down in the passage. But he talks about, you know, a good conscience through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus. So the third piece of the work of Christ is his resurrection that Jesus rose on the third day. We're going to be celebrating that in just, you know, just a couple months from now. We're going to be celebrating the resurrection. And what the resurrection is, is the victory over death. Like death rules until Christ was resurrected. Now Jesus rules. Does that make sense? And, 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 so, and so Jesus was resurrected. Now Jesus wasn't resuscitated he was resurrected. Like Lazarus was resuscitated. Lazarus rose from the dead, but then Lazarus a few, later, a few years later died again. Jesus was resurrected. Death has no hold of him. He'll never die again. Because what Jesus did in the resurrection is he broke the curse of, of death over our lives. He broke it. And that 
is really good news. Really what the resurrection is, is there's a whole, there's a dawning of a whole new era now. There's a whole new life now. It's, it's almost like, you know, you've heard me talk about um, Revelation 20, 21 and where, where God is taking the story of, of redemption and he takes it to new heaven and new earth. What the resurrection is, church, is new heaven and new earth in the physical body of Jesus Christ. It's pretty, pretty cool stuff there. All right, then there's one other piece of the work of Christ. And that is Jesus' ascension. Look with me at verse 22. Look at what he says and what he points us to. So not only resurrection, verse 22, he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He's, what, what he's describing there is the ascension of Jesus. So now he is, he is on the throne in heaven and Jesus is Lord of all. So that means every angel, every demon, every ruler, every authority, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every, every, every person will bow before Jesus and confess him Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And we're going to see that. It's going to be pretty amazing. So there you go, four aspects of his work. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Okay, Scott, I get, I get his passion. I get his, you know, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But what in the world does verse 19 mean? All right, let's, let's look at it again. In which, so right in the middle of this, right in the middle of the work of Christ, he sticks this phrase in here, uh, talking, talking about he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay, now what is he saying? I'll tell you, we've, we really have two options here, okay? And I'm just gonna lay these out. You make your own choice with it. Uh, whatever you wanna do with it, it's fine with me. I will still love you. And I'll, I'll kind of let you in on what, what I think about this passage. Here's option one. You guys ready? What in the world does this mean? Option one. Traditionally, it's been thought that what, what Peter is saying here, what he's referring to here, is that, is that in the time of between Jesus' death and his resurrection, in, those, in that time period, those three days, that he went into a prison. And in this prison were spirits of people. And these people for, were from the days of Noah. And, you know, they had rebelled against, you know, against God. And so the thought is, just taking this straight from, you know, just the text is that Jesus went into this prison, preached to these rebellious spirits, you know, this prison somewhere, we don't really know where, you know, where it is, but he preached to these spirits of these people that lived during the days of Noah. That's option one. And, and you know, that's, that's been, that's, that's very common, very common approach to this, all right? There's some problems with it, as you could imagine. Okay, the first problem is this. When we're trying to understand a passage of scripture, you wanna ask the question, are there other scriptures that can help me understand this one? So are there any other verses in the Bible that speak to, you know, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22? And you know what? The answer to that is there's not a single verse in all of scripture that talk about Jesus while he was dead, went to some prison, you know, to, to preach to these folks that lived during Noah's day. Okay, not a single verse in all the Bible, all right? So that's a little caution flag for me right there. Like there's no other verse that even hints at that. Secondly, I think the second problem with this is, is really just the fact that, you know, it would make a little bit more sense 
if he was preaching to kind of all the spirits that, you know, of the people that rebelled before Christ. The, the, pro, the challenge with this is it, it just says that he went to this particular group, you know, the, the spirits of the people in the days of Noah. So it doesn't really make sense why that group and not all the other groups that lived throughout human history. Does that make sense? So that's, that's a little challenging um, for me and, and my part. The, the other problem with this is that is we kind of think that, you know, that he, he did this in between his death and resurrection, but the text doesn't actually say that. You know, we just kind of infer that, but that it doesn't actually say he did this while, you know, in the three days that he was dead before he was resurrected. So there's some problems with it, but, and those, those are, they're, they're, they're three. All right, let me give you an option too. And this is, this is not for me. This is uh, Augustine. I've had some help with this. Uh, Augustine, the great theologian, Wayne Grudem, who's a tremendous uh, current day uh, theologian as well. And this is, this is kind of their approach to this. They think what he's saying here is, is that Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, that Jesus before, you know, Jesus has always existed. But before he took on human flesh, Jesus actually preached to the people in Noah's day and called them to repentance and faith. He, he didn't do it after the fact. He did it during the day, during Noah's day. He, he was there during Noah's day. Now, then the question is, well, how was he there? Because the, the story of Noah in Genesis 9 doesn't really mention Jesus being there. Well, um, what James tells us is that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And I think the thought is, is that Jesus preached through the preachers. He preached through Noah. That it was like Jesus speaking to these rebellious people, calling them to, to follow God. And, and uh, he speaks through the preachers. Hopefully, like when I stand up to preach, hopefully you pray. You're praying, God, speak through Pastor Scott today. Jesus, speak through Pastor Scott today. Because don't, you don't come to hear me, right? You, you come to hear God's word. You, hear, you come to hear the word of God. And, and I think that's at the heart of what's happening here. Wayne Grudem says that, that what makes this, this uh, passage so challenging is the translation is difficult. And so he says it really should be translated, quote, he went and preached to those who are now spirits in prison and who formerly disobeyed. So he preached to them long ago. That's what Wayne Grudem says. All right, so there you go, two options. You can go with whichever one you want to go, and I'll still love you. I like option two. That makes a little bit more sense to me, but whatever. So then the question is this. Why would he even mention Noah in the first place? Okay, so he's talking about the work of Christ, the four aspects of, of the work of Christ. So why would he even bring up Noah in the first place? Well, I think the reason why he brings up Noah is because baptism is what connects us to the work of Christ. Baptism right over there connects us to Jesus' suffering, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, and Jesus' ascension. And the story of Noah and the flood is a type of baptism. 
okay? You guys remember the story in Acts chapter nine, uh, God calls Russell Crowe to build this big ark, I mean, uh, Noah, and um, to build this big ark. And there's so much human sin and wickedness in the world that, that, that Genesis, the writer of Genesis tells us that God was sorry that he made man and woman because wickedness just ruled. So it was not an easy time to be alive, to say the least. And so God makes the decision to bring judgment, you know, down, you know, on, you know, on the, uh, you know, on the people because of, because of their sin. And, and, um, and so, um, you know, Noah, he calls Noah to build the ark and, and Noah and his family are saved. And, and then the animals two by two are in the ark and they're saved as well. And then, so there's, after the flood, there's a new creation. That's really an illustration of baptism. And I would contend, church, that what connects us to the work of Jesus is baptism. And he's just using Noah as an illustration of that. What happened during the flood? Two things happened. Judgment and salvation at the same time. Judgment and salvation. The same waters that floated the ark with Noah and his family in it. Those same waters saved Noah and his family, but those same waters overwhelmed and destroyed the wicked, destroyed every person who was not in the ark. So what you have in the flood is the presence of judgment and salvation at the same time. Does that make sense? Now think of the cross. What's in the cross? The same thing. Judgment and salvation. Because what happened on the cross? Death. You see, that debt had to be paid. And, and so the wrath of the Father comes down on the Son because of the sins of the world. That's judgment. But because the Son was sinless, and because, you know, because of the son's obedience, the father accepts the sacrifice of the son and the sacrifice of the son becomes salvation. So what you have on the cross is judgment and salvation. Now think about the baptistry. Think about, you know, what we're going to do in just a few minutes uh, as Eleanor gets baptized, right? Think about what's happening in the baptistry, judgment and salvation, so what we do is, you know, we lower the candidate down into the water. And it's almost like we, we momentarily drown them just for a very, very slight moment, right? I mean, if anybody else did to you what, what we do in the baptistry, I mean, you'd come out of the water and punch them right out. You know what I mean? But what do we normally do? We, we lay them down in the water. That's death. That's identifying with the death of Jesus. And if you've been really bad, we hold you under the water just to get it all out. I always tell that, I love that joke. That's a great joke. Um, so that's death. And then what do we do? Resurrection. See that? It's a type of flood. That's what that is. And uh, or baptism uh, is just like the flood. Look at Romans 6.3. Let me just show you this from scripture. This is Paul writing. Uh, he says this, do you not know that all of us have, who have been baptized into Christ were also baptized into his death? In baptism, in baptism, you are united with the death of Jesus by faith. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. 
So that's, that's what's happening here. When the flood waves of the world are pounding on you, you need to crawl into the ark of Jesus Christ by faith. And that's exactly what Noah did. Now look at verse 21. Let me deal with this because I know some of you might have a question about this. Baptism, which corresponds to this, okay? Baptism corresponding with what? Noah and the flood. And I, just, I just talked about that. Now saves you. Okay, this is another difficult part. Does he, is he saying that the waters actually save you? He's not saying that. It kind of looks like that. You read it quick, you move on. You kind of think, oh man, baptism saves you. That's not what he's saying. Now, how do I know that? Well, for a couple of reasons. Um, again, I want to ask, are there any other passages in the Bible that say that baptism saves you? Not a single passage, not even close. Not only that, but you remember the story of Jesus on the cross. What did he say to the thief? Because the thief came to saving faith, he said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise, provided we can get down off this cross and go find a baptistry and get you under there really fast. He didn't say that. Baptism doesn't save you. What's he talking about? Well, I, I think, again, you want to look a little bit more closely at it. Look, at, look again at verse 21. Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, what's he talking about? Why is he bringing up good conscience? Because your conscience is your, is your heart. It's, your, it's, you know, it's, it's something that's inside of you. What he's describing is this good conscience, this result of a good conscience is the result of the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart in forgiving you, wiping the slate clean, and, and regenerating you to be born again so that you are now a Christ follower. That's what he's talking about. And so baptism is, an, is really an expression of internal faith and trust in God. It's an outward demonstration that I believe in Jesus right here. So, so trust and faith is so connected to baptism. In Peter's mind, he can say, Baptism saves you because they're just hand in glove. I'm trusting in Jesus. Now, church, if he really believed that the waters of baptism actually save you, he would have said in this letter, go get all of your family members and friends baptized ASAP. It doesn't matter if they believe in Jesus or not. Just get them under the water and get them up and then they'll be saved. He doesn't even come close to saying that. Because there's nothing magical about the water. It's, it's an external uh, demonstration of what God has done internally. Now, let me just, let me just kind of close with this. What difference does baptism really make in, in my life and in your life on a daily basis? I think there's two to three things that really kind of answer that question about the difference that baptism makes. You know, here's the first one. Baptism reminds us of what God has done for us. That's what baptism does. It reminds us of what God has done for us. You know, when we, when we see someone baptized, we think of the work of Christ. We think of his suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. That's what we think of. And we think of the grace that's available to us. Our minds are brought back to the day we were baptized, to the saving faith that was given to us, to the grace given to us. And so it reminds us of what God has done for us in his son Jesus in opening the door for us to have grace every day, not just 
at a moment in time and then that's it. Well, we have access to grace every day. So think of it this way. Somebody at work has really hurt you. I mean, they've really wounded you and you're just tempted to hate them. I mean, you just want to choke them, you know? I mean, you just, you're, and you're, you're struggling with bitterness and anger and, and hatred. And I'm just telling you, church, if you give in to that, those cold waves will overwhelm you. And so, and so what you do is you remember your baptism. You remember that by faith, I went into the ark, the ark of Jesus, and he saved me. He gave me the grace that I needed. And you know what? In this hurt situation that I'm in, I really need that same grace. God, would you give me grace to forgive? You've done it in the past, and I know you'll do it again. And so baptism reminds us of that. It reminds us of the, how God's grace has worked and will continue to work in our lives. Does that make sense? But not only does baptism remind us of what God has done for us, it reminds us of what God is going to do for us, for those who are in him. It reminds us of what, what, you know, what he's going to do for us, that, he's, that one day we're going to go to the grave, church. And then there's going to be a day when Jesus raises our bodies out of the grave because we're in his resurrection, we're in him. And what I love about that is it, it tells us that we're going to be physically raised, our physical bodies. We're not going to be ghosts, okay, you know, hovering around heaven, you know, with angels' wings playing harps. We're not going to be doing that. We're going to have real, physical, glorified bodies in heaven. And what that means is that God loves the physical. What that means is God knows that the physical needs to be redeemed, and he did it. He did it in his son. So he's going to raise up our physical bodies, which means in the new heaven and new earth, you and I are going to eat together. We'll hug, we'll love, we'll laugh, we'll play, we'll work, we'll hang out. The one thing we're not going to do is sin. And that's what's going to make heaven heaven. That's what that's, what that's about. Resurrection, baby. How many of you want to be a part of that? I definitely do. Yes, sir. And, uh, and that's what it means. Can I give you a third thing about the difference baptism makes? And, and it's this. And, you know, I didn't even put it in your notes, but I was just thinking about it last night. But, but the, the, you know, when you think about the difference that baptism makes, it is a public identification with Jesus. This says, you know what? To the world, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Count me in. That's what it is. And I'm following him. And you know, a lot of Christians just see it as optional. They see baptism as optional. Well, you know, I've, I believe in Jesus. I've come to faith in Christ, but I'm not going to be baptized. It's just optional. It's kind of like Sirius XM radio and heated leather seats for your car. It's a nice thing to have, but it's just optional. And what I'm here to tell you, church, is this. It's not optional. Jesus commanded you to be baptized. Jesus was baptized out of obedience. And you need to be baptized as well. If you're a believer in Jesus, it's not optional. And what it does is it, is it solidifies, crystallizes, it, it applies. I mean, all the different verbs you can use. The work of Christ into my life, and it does it in a public way. And it says to the world, I'm following Jesus. You see it in the book of Acts. The apostles would preach. You know, Peter would be preaching great sermon. And then, 
they would ask him, what must we do to be saved? And what would Peter say? Repent, believe, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Make his work a part of your life and do it now. That's what baptism is. So here's what I want to do, church. I just want to challenge you to take a step. And maybe your step today is you need to do the believing and the repenting part. You you know, maybe you're not a Christian today and you just need to admit that you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died in your place and commit your life to him and to trust him for forgiveness. That's the great first step. You need to do that. You need to become a Christian. And then secondly, I would say you need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. So that's that's what I want to encourage you to do. And um, we have... An amazing treat today because Eleanor White is going to get baptized today. She's going to show us uh, death and resurrection right here. And we're so excited. But I'm going to just ask you to bow your heads and your hearts as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being united with you in death and in resurrection. Lord, our salvation is amazing. It's it's nothing short of breathtaking. It is astonishing. It, it, It blows us away. Lord, we're mindful of what Paul said, that eyes have not seen and ears have not heard. Neither is the mind conceived the things that God has in store for them that love him. We can't even begin to imagine what the new heaven and new earth gonna be like. But we just thank you that if we're in Christ, we get to be a part of that. And baptism just seals that for us. So I just pray that you would fill this place with your spirit. I pray God that you would work in our lives, that you would challenge us wherever we are, Father on the pathway that we would just, that we would follow you. You are worthy of our lives, you're worthy of our fellowship. And may you be glorified today. May you be honored today. And we thank you and praise you and all of God's people said.